0: Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. You've probably heard his voice on the radio. My guest today delivers business and financial news almost every morning on this station and public radio stations across the nation. In fact, the show he hosts has the largest audience of any business show in any medium. Need a hint? How about this? The
1: falling mortgage rate makes a difference. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. A bit of relief in recent days for prospective home buyers. Average rates for 30-year fixed-rate mortgages
0: have fallen to their lowest level since... That is Marketplace Morning Report and David Brancaccio. David has hosted the program for the last decade, and this morning we're fortunate to have him as our guest for the hour. He's joining us from his home in New Jersey. Good morning, David. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Angela. Thanks for having me by. So I'm wondering, as someone who regularly interviews people, how do you feel about being interviewed yourself? I know I get a little uncomfortable when I'm asked questions by reporters or other radio hosts. I think I worry about uh, getting too personal.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm fine on policy, and I, uh, you know, let's talk, (laughs) because that's the big stuff. As for David, I mean, I have three adult kids, and they're always – baffled and amazed that anyone would be at all interested in my backstory whatsoever.
0: (laughs) Well, they'll be impressed today, I hope, after they hear our conversation. And and I want to let our our listeners know how the plan for this conversation on the radio came about. You and I were both attending a Minnesota Public Radio event here in the Twin Cities. Uh, Marketplace and NPR are both part of the same organization, American Public uh, Media Group. And I didn't know what you looked like, but you were wearing a name tag. And I was like, oh, that's the Marketplace Morning Report guy. And I asked you, David, how many times you had visited Minnesota. You then shared a surprising story with me about your high school friends and the country of Madagascar. Uh, Would you tell our listeners about your unique Minnesota connections?
1: Well, you know, I say that I'm an honorary Minnesotan, but I realized it's really up to Minnesotans to bestow such an honor. So uh, y'all can – here's my pitch, okay? So I'm from Maine, as you say. Um, but one day at the end of eighth grade, my parents sat us down at, with a surprise. They said, well, you thought you're going to ninth grade here in Waterville, Maine in the fall. You're not. Uh, dad here has won a fellowship, uh, a, um, a Fulbright, to teach at the University of Madagascar. (laughs) Now, you know, since that happened when I was a kid, you know, the Disney movies are out. People kind of know a little bit about Madagascar, lemurs, island at the end of the earth, right? And um, The
0: southern tip of Africa.
1: Yeah, yeah, just off of East Africa. And they said, we're going there. And (laughs) I cried, I was bawling on the floor, and uh, turned out, in the fullness of time, to be one of the most... uh, uh, formative experiences of my life, but they didn't have a school for me when I got there. I, I could go to French-speaking school. My French was okay, but, you know, ninth grade, right. I, I might miss a lot. So there was a school at the southern tip of Madagascar run by Lutheran missionaries, mostly from your twin cities. And so although part of my experience is the rich diversity that is Madagascar, um, part of my experience was the rich diversity that is Minnesota. There's all these strange <laughs> Minnesota customs, strange to me at least, and that I had to acquire. So these are your and classmates.
0: So- these, these Minnesotans are your classmates.
1: Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, we had, uh, expatriate people who, like, parents had corporate jobs. We mm-hmm. had, um, we had, uh, for instance, diplomats. We had Malagasy students, but we also had missionaries, um, mm-hmm. who sounded very Minnesota and, uh, <laughs> And so we can't afford, really any of us, to go back to Madagascar for reunions for the school. So we do it your way. And it's always delightful, wonderful people. And I get there as often as I can. So, yeah, that's my pitch, that maybe I have some minor claim to minnesota Yeah,
0: and you're still close to many of your classmates. Uh, you, You do reunions here at Lakes in Minnesota, you say? It's true, and it's it gives me a
1: taste of what it was like back in ninth grade. There was a coup d'état that year, martial law. Uh, shooting in the streets. There was a hurricane. Uh, they called it a cyclone. It's been, spin, it spins mm-hmm. in the other direction, destroyed the place. A lot of intense things happened that year, which, um, you know, were bonded. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to get together in Minnesota to do, do that. The other thing is some of the real stalwart Minnesotans like to go winter camping up at Boundary Waters. Oh yeah. We know about that. And the, yeah, right. And so they do the most statistically coldest weekend of the year in January. And, um, yeah, I've <laughs> done, done that. and It's uh it's imp- it's, uh, it's an experience.
0: And you also mentioned to me that when Thanksgiving rolled around, you had a memorable moment with your, your Minnesotan classmates.
1: Yeah. So I mean, look, I mean, I'm very far from home. My parents are living 500 miles away in the capital of Madagascar. You know, it's you know, I was feeling homesick. So they did an attempt at American Thanksgiving in this school on the other side of the world. They found like a local pheasant and pretended it was turkey. They found a squash and turned (laughs) it into a lovely pie. They had the spices. And I was thinking about this for weeks because in my family, um, you know, a meal is five, six hours long. (laughs) Um, So uh, the meal comes at the school. We're all there ready to roll. And I start munching through the very first course. And about 12 minutes later, the Minnesotans leave, finished, and go play soccer and football outside. They're done. Their meal is to the point and fast. And I'm sitting there essentially alone at the table going, what about my culture of food? It was just a different perception and, uh, you know, I had to roll with it.
0: So uh, I want to tell our listeners a little bit more about you, uh, David, and your career. Uh, again, David Brancaccio, we're talking with him, the host of Marketplace Morning Report. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, you were also the host of the flagship half-hour Marketplace program, and uh, you anchored the public television news program. Now, uh, your reporting has focused on the economy, financial markets, the role of technology and labor markets, human rights, the environment, as well as inequality in the economy. We'll talk more about that. And more recently, the video game industry. Uh, You've written a book, made a a feature-length documentary, and now uh, also earning some of the highest honors in broadcast journalism, including a a Peabody, uh, uh, an Emmy, the Walter Cronkite Award – uh, we're talking with David this hour about his views on the economy, as well as uh, his hobby of launching rockets. That's right, rockets. <laughs> we're going to cover a lot of ground here. But we're taking your phone calls, too. The phone lines are open. And, and this is what we want to hear from you, our listeners. How do you describe how the economy is doing right now? And what is it about your personal situation that makes you think the way you do? Is it your job or job prospects? housing costs, or the price of education, medical care, child care, what questions do you have for David Brancaccio? The phone lines are open, and here are the numbers you can call, 651-227-6000. Again, you can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-800. Two four two twenty eight twenty eight. Give us a call. David, uh, you are a very familiar voice on public radio, and people hear you talking about money and the economy. And I want to know, as a journalist, why do you enjoy focusing on that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't, perhaps in graduate school, uh, which I, where I studied journalism, did I say to myself, I really want to become a business reporter. But when Marketplace was formed in 1989, uh it was a bunch of interesting journalists placed on the beat of money and it's really hard to find a story where money is irrelevant i mm-hmm. mean maybe you can find a few mm-hmm. um you know there's some wonderful uh, stories about art faith and so forth that really are not money stories but you can't say that all stories about religion have no money attached and certainly the business of art is a story for us so it's really everywhere but i've always been i don't know what do I call a, a plain spoken person? I like speaking mm-hmm. straightforward English and I don't uh, enjoy jargon. It makes me break out in a rash. And so that's what Marketplace does. And let's take stuff that used to be – um Uh, curated by the high priests of business journalism, uh, and, and maybe your broker, your stockbroker, and democratize this a little bit so that as increasingly, for better or for worse, so many of us, uh, have to make our own financial decisions, uh, that they'll be equipped, you know, if they spend a little time with, with the marketplace shows to be better informed about those decisions. It's been a fun beat. I was, uh, I've met business reporters in other media. Who think it's like getting their hands dirty and they'd like to grow up to become foreign affairs reporters or (laughs) national political reporters, and that's fine for them. But I actually really relish the beat. I think you find out a lot of truth when you follow the money.
0: So on this talk show uh, that I host each weekday morning at nine, I spend a lot of time talking about racial disparities across Minnesota um, in you know, in the economy, but also in the economy and in, in, in education, um, household income. I mean, you name it. In, in healthcare, care, uh, Minnesota has some of the, the most glaring disparities in the nation. Uh, you also have an interest in talking about inequality. And so what is it about uh, that that interests you?
1: Yeah, I mean I think your work and my team's work are pulling very much in the same direction. Inequality is the key thing that was dropped out of economics textbooks for traditionally and there are modern textbooks that are doing a much better job exploring inequality. But inequality in America, economic inequality uh, also globally explains a lot. Now I'm going to share with you a statistic and uh, sorry to do this to you because you may never get over from it. I have seen a chart using real data that looks at your parents' income graphed across your chances of going to college. Okay, And typically with a graph, Angela, on something like this, it looks like you threw a grain of rice onto a piece of paper and then you use statistics to extrapolate some kind of a line. It lines up perfectly. If Mm -hmm. your parents made $5 more in income, you have that exact amount of chance that you'll go to college. What does that tell you? It Mm -hmm. tells you (laughs) Mm -hmm. that the previous generations, um, the amount of money that they were able to earn will have an important effect on your chances in life. And it gets to uh, generational disparities. It gets to the difficulty of lifting people up, uh, who the economy is not lifting up, and it's just—it's mind-boggling. You zoom into that line, and it is
0: very closely aligned, and it's—it's it's shocking. And uh, it, it begins to, you know, put everything into context in terms of like why are we, why are we at where we are right now in certain circumstances. If you look back and you follow the money, you can see, you can draw a line. Yeah, I saw this.
1: Uh, uh, it was a study from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, so authoritative. It's a couple years old now. I'd have to look at some fresher data. But it looked at, not the Twin Cities, looked at Boston, and it was, um, it looked at net worth. Now, don't confuse that with uh, income. So net worth, and that would be like, you know, what's the worth of your cars, if you have a house, your savings, and that kind of stuff. And it tabulated it in terms of race. And so the typical median Net worth of a Boston white household was very close to a quarter million dollars at the time, 248,500-something, if I remember right. Total net worth of black families in Boston, same study, $8. I'm not missing a zero there, $8. Why a lot of that is home ownership or lack thereof. Why structural racism, systems set up. To deny the ability to buy a house to some people and encourage it among others like the GI Bill that discriminated against black veterans. So these are crucial issues that along with covering the stock market, covering the latest AI, artificial intelligence innovation, Mm -hmm. we need to keep a close eye on in public media.
0: I'm talking with David Brancaccio, who is the host of Marketplace Morning Report. And we're taking your phone calls. How do you think the economy is doing right now? And what is it about your personal situation that makes you think the way that you do? You can give us a call at 651-227-6000 or call us at 800-242-2828. David, we're going to take some more, take some phone calls as I continue to ask you questions. Uh, This phone call is from Centerville, Minnesota. This is Derek on the The phone. Good morning, Derek. Thank you for calling in. And what did you want to say or or ask David?
2: Good morning. Yeah, thank you for uh, taking my call. Um, So, I uh, actually am a labor economist, and so I uh, share a lot of the same interests, I think, as David. And uh, one question I do have is our labor force participation rate uh, has recovered uh, since since pre COVID, um, but not as high as it has been historically. In fact, I think. March 2001, we were at 75% labor force participation rate. I think we're maybe at 67 now. Why, uh, why the gap, or uh, how do we get back up to those levels, uh, what environment or economic conditions are required, um, so that we can address a lot of the labor shortages?
0: Mm, labor shortages. Thank you, uh, Derek. Uh, we're seeing labor shortages in, in every uh, industry. What are your thoughts on this, David?
1: I'm so glad that someone with actual expertise entered the conversation, an actual <laughs> economist. Uh, I got – that is not my – I don't have degrees in that. But labor force participation, right, people who come off the sidelines um, and join the labor force, mm-hmm. um, as more people do that, it's something really quite healthy. Um, and one of the answers – it's a complex matter and I know <laughs> – uh, that the the labor economist here from Centerville w- was aware of it, but some of it has to do with childcare. Okay, uh, childcare is what's called what economists call a failed market. Why is that? Well, uh, childcare centers would like to raise their rates so they can attract good people to um, mind the children. Mm-hmm. But if they raise rates to do that, to get the people they need it becomes too expensive for many parents to actually use the service. So they can't raise their rates. So they can't uh, find enough people, and there are not enough uh, child care facilities in America. It's a big deal, especially after COVID. There was this big uh, federal subsidy for child care, came to an end this fall, cold turkey. And there are estimates from some think tanks about – you know, enormous numbers of children are going to be able, are going to be left out and parents left holding the bag trying to find childcare. So, I mean, if you can't find childcare, it is hard to get into the labor force. And I think that's one thing that uh, we have to keep thinking about.
0: We recently did a, a talk show on this, the the state of child care. And it is, I mean, it is a conundrum. I mean, the, the hourly wages are not very high. Uh, but at the same time, the, the families who are looking for child care. It's very expensive for them. Uh, there are facilities that uh, have more room, but they can't find enough staff to do the work. Uh, it's just a mess. It really is a mess. I'm looking it up as we're talking. I don't know if I can
1: find it fast enough. We have a – yeah, we do this. uh, We we multitask (laughs) in this line of work. Um, uh, We have this feature uh, on the program. I actually love doing it every month. We watch a documentary film every month, and we draw marketplace lessons from them. The staff does? Uh, Yeah, and then we share it on the air through some coverage, Mm -hmm. and we also uh, have a newsletter. It's called Econ Extra Credit. It's a lot of fun. The audience seems to dig it. And – there was a fabulous documentary in which uh these uh, film crews stayed with an overnight child care center mm. in Connecticut and showed these heroic uh couple who ran this thing and um Um, and what they are up against and the difficulty in keeping, um, the staff and the desperation of parents. I'll come up with the, with the name of this. Uh, through the night, is
0: that it? Let's see if that's what it is. So it's, it's an overnight facility for people who have those overnight hours because it's like impossible to find child care late at night, early, early in the morning. Yeah,
1: no, it's it's it was a special uh, – it was this couple that ran this family mm-hmm. business but hired – also, you know, you can't do it all yourself, which was part of right. the tension in the film. Mm-hmm. I think it's called Through the Night, a verite documentary here, um, and uh, it, I commend it to people to really just see how a failed market like that, um, you know, how heroic people try to push back
0: against that. Mm. How many people work uh, on the Marketplace Morning Report with you? Morning Report, I mean, part
1: of it, it's fungible, right? We have a relationship with the BBC, and that's a pretty decent-sized newsroom in London. We have correspondence for the afternoon show and our podcasts that we share. But in terms of the um overnight wretches, including me, who have to get up at ridiculous hours, right. it's probably about six or seven people on the morning show. And uh, I get two, usually, two reporters who are up at my hour, ready mm-hmm. to roll. I've got a couple producers, and it's... um. You know, it's the modern world. We're uh, a disparate staff. I have an engineer in Los Angeles. I'm often in New York. A producer could be in New York. A producer could be in the Twin Cities. And uh, uh, we do five of them a morning for all the different time zones.
0: And then the decision-making and how to get it within a certain number of minutes, that's got to be difficult. Yeah, Pairing it down, uh, right?
1: It's like eight minutes, 27 seconds, or something like that. All I know is that at... 58 se- – uh, at 58 minutes and 57 seconds, my mouth needs to close. Zip it, I mean, right? Zip it. <laughs> you got <And>, to it. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not allowed to libel anybody. I am not allowed to get facts wrong. Uh, you know, that can happen, but I certainly work hard not to do that, and I have to end at that moment. Yeah, it's a – It's a bit of an art.
0: I want to uh, relay a question. This is a written question that's come in from uh, Hennison. Hennison says that uh, that he is from Liberia and says, with prices so high, David, is consumer spending in the U.S. uh, economy increasing or decreasing? Uh, Prices high in groceries, a lot of things, prices are high. And so uh, Hennison is asking about consumer spending. Is it increasing or decreasing? What are you seeing?
1: Hennison, bless you for asking that question because it gets right to the heart of what we're talking about here, which is what people tell pollsters about the economy, how they actually perceive the economy versus what the economic statistics say about the economy, right? So people Mm -hmm. generally are quite miserable about the economy right now, yet the statistics say this is awesome economy. Um, So you take a look at consumer spending, right? That's people voting with their feet and their wallets. Like, how's the economy? Consumer spending is still very robust. It's still very robust despite – uh, the inflation. Um, some people who are uh, who foresee uh, a downturn next year because of the work that the Federal Reserve is doing to wring out the rest of inflation, they're like, well, they're, it's last minute spending until they know doom is coming. Uh, another way to look at it is people are feeling confident enough to spend. Um, but let's loop it back to inequality. When you hear economic figures about very low unemployment, mm-hmm. about, uh, about, for instance, consumer spending. That's on average. That's on average. And it obscures the fact that some people are doing very well and some people are doing miserably. Earlier this summer, we focused on this statistic. 58% of American households were living paycheck to paycheck at least once over the last year. And so if somebody comes by saying, hey, we're doing a survey, how's the Mm -hmm. economy? If you're in that situation where you just don't know how you're going to make ends meet, it's that precarious, you're going to say the economy is not going in the right direction, Um, even though many other people are not living paycheck to
0: paycheck. 58%. Paycheck to paycheck oh, over the course of a month. That, that was the, the finding.
1: Well, no, at least once at in least the course of a year. Once in the course so, of like, a year, okay. like, look, You look back on uh, the year, has this happened to you mm. a few times or something mm-hmm. like that. That's a better way to think mm-hmm. about the statistic. But it's an economy that does not serve everyone, and the United States – Inequality is down near some uh, very disadvantaged countries. If, when you take a look at the sort of list of inequality, and uh, we, we don't score particularly highly in that area. Now, you do want some inequality. You know what would happen if we had perfect equality? Uh, you know, you wouldn't have all that much innovation. People would be like, "Well, I get the same income anyway. Why do I have to come up with a cool new business?" Mm-hmm. But Many economists argue that, uh, that it's hard to keep an econ- a, a democracy together at levels of inequality that we see. It's, it's, it's a divisive uh, force.
0: I'm talking with David Brancaccio, the host of Marketplace Morning Report. And you can talk to him too. We're taking your phone calls. We want to know how you think the economy is doing right now. And what is it about your personal situation that makes you think the way you do? Is it your job, your housing, or child care costs, the price of education, medical care? What questions do you have for David? You can call us at 651 227 6000 or call us at 800-242-2828. Let's take another call from a listener, this time from Waconia. Good morning. It's Ashley on the phone. Hi, Ashley. What did you want to say or ask?
2: Hi there. Um, yeah, I am just calling in. Um, I was kind of listening to your conversation about small businesses um, and then also inequality. I actually ha- had the pleasure to live in Europe for a few years. Um, my husband is from over there. Um, But one thing I think that doesn't get discussed enough is how much inequality there is even in just healthcare prices, Mm -hmm. especially premiums from, you know, if you're employed at a small employer versus, you know, a state job or a um, large employer. Uh, My husband is employed at a small employer and, you know, the premium prices alone, just because he works at a small employer are, you know, quite big. I think that's really unfortunate is that, you know, you're not, you have to kind of always be thinking in America, you know, okay, one person has to work for the good insurance. Um, You're not necessarily free to work for the small businesses all the time, even if you would like to, because you have to kind of always worry about health insurance. Um, I think the Minsure marketplace is maybe an attempt in the, you know, the right direction maybe where you can freely buy your own insurance and what you need instead of having You know, your small business kind of control what you can and can't do. Um, But I think that's just a big part of people's budgets as well and paychecks that, you know, does kind of get overlooked. And then I think it also ties into the hiring for small businesses. Um, You know, it's hard to attract employees if, you know, you're going to have to pay for Mm -hmm. a family, you know, anywhere up to $900 a month in premiums Mm -hmm. if they're not offering really great insurance.
0: Right, That's uh, Ashley in Waconia. Uh, David, what are some of your thoughts about health insurance costs and how it affects people?
1: Let me say two things. It's so interesting the way um, Ashley illustrated something important. Let's see if I can, uh, in my head, remember that uh, study. Here it is. It's something like this. Um, She mentioned how much it costs to hire someone else for a small business, how much the health care would add. Mm -hmm. And Regardless of how much you pay that employee, the added health care cost is the same, right? So if you uh, hired a new CFO at a higher rate, the health insurance you would provide as a small business person would be the same as if you hired a lower paid employee. Mm-hmm. That makes the effective price of the health care more expensive for the worker who is at the lower edge of the income scale economists have shown that discriminates against the lower paid jobs and businesses hire fewer of them it is something the healthcare costs is an engine of inequality because relatively the healthcare costs of the employment package is less for the higher paid employee it's so fascinating and uh, you know we in america want to have the best healthcare systems uh, system in the world but by many measures, we don't have that despite all the wonderful innovation that you do get in American healthcare. And so it, this is an ongoing issue. So healthcare costs, Ashley mentioned, something else that really bothers people about the economy right now is the cost of accommodation of a house or an apartment. Uh, you know, we, when you talk about the consumer price index, you're often talking about what's the price of a can of corn or something, but it's also what you're paying for accommodation. And we were reporting on the statistic that in some of the big cities, a person with the typical income, the median income, looking to get the typical accommodation to buy the typical house would have to pay 80 percent of their disposable income for the mortgage, which can happen, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you just can't do that. So you rent and look at rental prices in many places. So this is also contributing to – people sense that the economy is not in an ideal situation
0: we're talking with david brancaccio the host and senior editor of marketplace morning report Uh, you can talk to him too call us at 651-227-6000 or call 800-242-2828 i want to take another phone call david before we take a news break but i want to get this person in who's calling from sioux falls uh, south dakota this is kamara on the line good morning kamara what did you want to uh, talk about
2: Yes, good morning. Thank you for having me chime in. Um, mm-hmm. I have uh, a crisis kind of coming that I think a lot of us are approaching. I have a child who I just sent off to college, so I'm bearing college costs. But at the same time, I have two aging parents, mm. both of whom have Alzheimer's. One of mm-hmm. whom is in a facility, which is very hard to locate and costs 12000 a month. And mm-hmm. the other one who has moved in with me that I'm taking care of currently. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to comment. I think there's a lot of people out there that are kind of in this situation with the aging of, of their elder parents or even yes. themselves. And also the difficulty in finding quality care that isn't, you know, bankrupting us. Right. So I just... That is a big growing concern, and I think a lot of people are in this
0: situation. Uh, Kamara, thank you for sharing that. My heart goes out to you. Uh, a situation a lot of people are, are in, uh, the care of, uh, of aging parents, the, the uh, care of young adult kids. Uh, David, what are you seeing there?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear that account from Kamara. I mean, the sandwich generation, mm-hmm. uh, people in the middle, right, worrying about paying college costs. <laughs> Those aren't going down. Um, also worry about health care costs, not just for themselves, but for older relatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, some of the economic forces that make childcare difficult to find is also applied to elder care.
0: Mm-hmm. She used the word crisis.
1: I would agree. Well, I think it is a crisis and, uh, you know, people say, well, there's all this money that people have saved. Uh, there's going to be this big intergenerational transfer of wealth from middle class people who have somehow saved in there over the years. But yeah, mm. until you get older and you need to spend money on both your own, uh, retirement care, but also perhaps an older generation's retirement care. Um, hopefully they have saved, uh, but that is not, often the
0: case. Uh, Let's take a phone call from Minneapolis. Anne is on the line. Good morning, Anne. And and what do you want to to hear as we talk about the economy? Uh,
2: Yeah, I'd like to talk about the cost of transportation and the fact that people take for granted that the the expense of owning a car is quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And the fact that public transit isn't really a viable alternative in most communities.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. The cost of transportation uh, and it uh, for many people, even if you yes, if you own a car, the maintenance uh, it, it can be a financial drain yeah mhm uh, david what what are you seeing with uh, transportation costs it 's another burden on
1: families, especially in rural areas where where are you 're going to find public transportation in many cases right. remember my um, one of my kids went to school in Ohio for college and uh, uh, the local public officials were so strapped for cash, they actually turned off the entire bus system for the county, oh, right? Yeah. And so oh. – uh, you know, and when you buy a car, as the caller points out, it's not just the monthly payment on the car. <laughs> it's uh, – cost of gas. By a used car, it's yeah. – it, well, by a used car, it's maintenance, but the cost of gas. Now, the cost mm. of fuel has been coming down from its high – uh, but there are many other costs and, uh, I was London bureau chief for this outfit years ago. And what are there? 250 subway stations, not including the extensive bus system. I, we didn't have a car for three years in that town because you could do it mm-hmm. with public uh, transit. And my buddy over there turns, what do you do? He turned 60 and all that public transit became free in the UK. Um, You can imagine such a thing in this country. It's hard to it's hard to imagine. So, yeah, it's another uh, it's another burden.
0: Let's take another phone call. Uh, This one from Minneapolis. This is Chris, who is on the phone. Good morning, Chris. Thank you for waiting. And and what do you want to ask David?
3: Good morning. Um, Hey, two things. One, does uh, the name Joel Toso mean anything to you from your time in Madagascar? (laughs)
1: <laughs> he was my roommate,
3: Uh-oh. and uh, oh my he's not
1: living in Minnesota now. He moved because of a job to an adjacent state. But yeah. that is one of the toughest um, spearfisher of sharks I have ever seen. Oh. I'm not. That's not a metaphor. He's 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 intrepid, but uh, a wonderful person. And in fact, the person who leads the expeditions to boundary waters when we go.
3: <laughs> well, I was listening to your show as I was driving to work, and. I was in uh, undergraduate and graduate school with Joel, and somewhat have kept touch with him over the years, and, and one of my favorite persons, and yes, I remember his stories about the Boundary workers. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so I, my question for you real quick is, do you have an opinion on what is the target inflation uh, number that mm. the Fed always talks about, and People are all up in arms about as inflation has come back down, sort of a two percent versus three percent. Is there, you know, a significant issue in in your mind if they don't ever make it to two percent? I don't know if you have an opinion on that or not.
1: So. yeah, I mean, that's the big goal, right? They want two percent. They think that's a healthy level of inflation. If they got there, they could stop being tough on interest rates. I think, you know, as a non-economist, I, I don't need to set it right at 2% or argue that 2.4% would be too high. That's for the Fed people to talk about. But what is, I think, important for anyone listening to us now is the trade-off between jobs and prices is a public policy decision. There are people trying to drive the economy in Washington, um, who have to manage these things. And they can manage for a few more jobs or they can manage for a little bit less uh, in terms of inflation. And they're winners and losers depending on what target that you adopt. And th- this is another thing that helps explain the economy seeming so strong when you use the statistics versus what people say they perceive the economy to be. If you are employed, and right now Unemployment is very low. A lot of people are employed. If you are employed, you're not looking for a job every two seconds, right? You got your job. But you are experiencing high prices on a daily basis. You are getting annoyed when a box of water crackers to go with your cheese is 8 dollars uh, which I saw the other day yeah. on here on the East Coast. Uh, <laughs> are you kidding me? Uh, and, uh, and so people see the effects of inflation on a constant basis – but they don't reflect on the need for a job on quite the same basis. Um, so the, the, it's a decision that's made. Do you go for 3% inflation, 2%? Uh, and the Fed is insulated at some level from the political process uh, by design, but it's also an important public policy discussion.
0: And David, I want to ask you about a project that you're working on now at Marketplace. It's called Skin in the Game and it's focused on the video game industry. And and so what has made you interested in in video games and this in this industry? What are what are you discovering and exploring with this?
1: Yeah, it's 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 uh so surprising. The video game industry is larger than the music industry and the movie industry combined. What do you mean? It is huge. Yeah, and uh, there's more money that flows through video games than both those things combined. Partly because
0: I had <coughs> no idea. Me, the,
1: yeah, it's it's just vast, and it isn't just kids, you know, staring at their uh, mobile devices playing no. uh, games. It's uh, people of all ages. It's a huge thing, and uh, many of the big multiplayer games are economies. Uh, They have economies built into them, virtual economies designed by professional economists who are on staff at video game companies. I didn't know that before I started out on this journey of reporting. Um, But a big question for society is if this is such a booming industry, booming for whom? I don't mean on the player end. I mean on the hiring end in part. Um, In other words – uh, who gets to make the games and are there are structural reasons that game producers are not as diverse as one would expect. A lot of game companies are, for instance, in Northern California, a lot of diverse population there, people from many backgrounds. So we uh, uh, part of our coverage for Skin in the Game has been looking at a mentoring program in Northern California that brings people from high schools and uh, colleges of many different backgrounds and gets them set up for um lucrative jobs in that industry. If we don't do this, and the meta issue that we're talking about, Angela, here is do we have the pipeline we need for all the high-tech jobs of the future, AI, video games, anything, um, the jobs will go elsewhere. So Montreal, wow. Canada has a burgeoning video game industry. Asia, places like Korea does. Um, some of the Nordic countries uh, have are doing very well employing people. So we got to think about how do we get people the training necessary to um, be part of this bounty? That's you know classic marketplace question. It's been a lot of fun meeting lovely young people who have gotten engaged.
0: And I understand your son works in the video game industry. What does he do?
1: Yeah, my son went to art school. And uh, there were other parents going. What's you going to do with that? Well, <laughs> did they say it just like that? <laughs> uh, that's exactly what they say, right? And so uh, he also taught himself to code, and he is a um, wow. a video game engineer in Northern California. He's the one who told me about the mentoring program, and I and and then I looked up how big the video game industry is, and a lot of the marketplace people are big players of video games. <sighs> um, I. Know how to play video games, I have a few that I really enjoy, but <laughs> I, there for me a little bit of a time suck. I got a lot on my plate here as i as you do, Angela, and sometimes I worry you can fall down the those rabbit holes, but uh, yeah, Nick uses his artistic skills my son to to develop
0: video games, and uh, you know he 's gainfully employed well, I like to you know encourage young people like you know figure out what your passion and what your talent is, and then that 's maybe that will give you some direction as to what you want to do after you graduate. And, you know, I, I love people who have very, or hearing the stories of people who have very unconventional career paths. Um, and I think you have had an unconventional career path because I have in my notes here that you were one time a traffic reporter. What, what, oh, what gosh, was yeah. that? What, what were you thinking? with This, that? this oh, comes what? out on Minnesota public radio.
1: <laughs> All right. So I, I was in radio since adolescence, age 15. Back then, If you took a test that the government gave, the Federal Communications Commission, and passed the test, uh, you get a license and they might put you on a local radio station. And in my small town, they would take anybody who didn't drink to excess and showed up on time with the license. So at age 15.8 or something, almost 16, before I could drive – I had a job on the radio as a news guy and a disc jockey and stuff like that, right. and I just love radio. I've I know, I've known I wanted to do it since I was three, but um, since you were three, gr- are you joking? Yeah. I'm not joking. I had an uncle who was a ham radio, an amateur radio yeah. operator, WB2EZL, EZ ends of Lever. lover. And the way he gave those call letters sounded kind of sexy. And I thought, wow, all right. <laughs> this is at h three, I guess I'm trying to say. Anyway, I, I've stayed with radio through the years. But when I graduated college, it was the, re- the recession during the Reagan years of 1982, and they were not hiring. Real radio jobs were not hiring. So I did what I had to do, but at least I stayed in broadcasting. Yes, I was in a Cessna 172 fixed-wing airplane over Washington, D.C.
0: I think that's actually cool. Well,
1: I mean it's uh, it certainly has led to the ability to um, speak on the radio under any conditions. And I actually can still do um, like from 1982 – the outer loop of the Capitol Beltway just past the Cabin John Bridge in the number two lane and overturned tractor trailer has things backed up to River Road. See, I can still do it.
0: Impressive. And I have lived in the D.C. area. I also have in my notes here that you very much were inspired by the DJ Wolfman Jack.
1: <laughs> you got all the goods on me. Today, Angela. I, you, you saw the,
0: Wolfman Jack in a movie. Yes.
1: Well, in this, in a form like this, I've traditionally said, yes, uh, Edward R. Murrow, I say all well, very pompously, the legendary CBS journalist was my inspiration and inspiration. Uh, I've read every Edward R. Murrow book and think he is amazing. But my real inspiration is 50 years ago this year, that George Lucas uh, coming-of-age movie, American Graffiti, was released. And a lot of people dug the 50s and early 60s music in it. The cars attract a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. The only thing I could see at age 13 watching this movie was Wolfman Jack, the crazy DJ. And – I saw him on screen acting as the wise advisor of, uh, of one of the characters, the father figure, um, also the all-knowing voice on the radio, kind of uh, master of ceremonies for the plot. I said to myself, I got to get into that field. And I actually conspired to, to go down and see Wolfman Jack in person. Uh, I'm from Maine, as I say. I had to get to New York as a 13-year-old. First time I did it, I blew it, and the schedule didn't line up. I didn't see him because he works nights, and the NBC tour in New York ends at 5 o'clock. But I got some intel, and uh, the tour guide said, well, if you come on a Thursday, he pre-tapes one of his shows. And so I show up on a Thursday afternoon all the way back to New York to see Wolfman Jack, and I saw him through the window. I don't know if he ever saw me with my little adolescent face, but uh, I got to see him, and I have a little autograph. Uh, I sent him a, a, a fan note at one point. Um, but there is something magical about how radio people are everywhere, right? They pop out of radios, they stream out of your devices, but they're also nowhere. I mean, right now, <laughs> does it matter where, I mean, who knows where you are? I know I'm in a New Jersey basement uh-huh. where I have a studio. I'm not in our New York bureau today um it's right. that lovely tension um and the other thing is with radio the other paradox is that you can do something else while you listen to us with your full consciousness so mm-hmm. you can drive you mm-hmm. can cook you can um you know work on some crafts or something and still absorb what we're saying and that is very hard to find in other media i you know i love television too I did that uh show with Bill Moyers
0: on PBS and we covered oh. the big issues of our time. You know? I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you right there because I think we have a caller on the line who wants to talk to you about that. Uh let's take oh, cool. this, this listener in Stillwater, Aaron is on the phone. Hi, Aaron.
3: Hey, uh thanks for having me. Uh David, yeah, just kind of going back to your um <clears throat> through your career here. Um I was first introduced to you through uh now on PBS and um yeah, I was just curious, um uh, to hear you talk about your collaboration with uh, with Bill um, and, and you know, <laughs> who he was to you and, and who he continues to be and, and what you hear from him these days and what he might be up to.
0: Yeah, you had a stint in television. Thank you, uh, Aaron, there in Stillwater, uh, hosting a, a weekly news magazine show now on PBS. What was that like?
1: Yeah, for about seven years. And the early years were co-hosting with this amazing, famous figure in journalism and Public Broadcasting, Bill Moyers himself, I co-anchored with him, and he's everything you want him to be. He is uh, larger than life, and working in that newsroom was like – you know, like The West Wing, that TV show Mm -hmm. that that sort of uh, has the fictionalized uh, version of what it would be like to work in politics. Uh, Working on this real show was like the fictionalized version of a newsroom. We were covering deep issues. I was covering very important issues. social issues. I went to Guantanamo prison early on um, to do an investigation there. And uh, Bill was incredibly generous and deeply wise and he curated quite an amazing staff of producers and reporters that let us uh, explore these issues every Friday night. Here's a asked about Bill. Um, he's had some very good news recently. Um, the Library of Congress, in partnership with um, the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, something close – that we'll Google out close to that, has the entire Bill Moyers video archive, everything, easily searchable and clickable. That's and cool. so there's a rich set of things on there um, –
0: You know, you don't have to look at my stuff. (laughs) You can look at the the good stuff, but there it is. David, we have just a minute left, and I often like to ask our guests for some words of encouragement. So as you think about economic news and just the financial stress a lot of people are under, what words of encouragement do you have for our listeners? Well, I
1: think that – we're at a juncture that could be spectacular for um, innovation, the economy, and jobs, or it could be something dreadful, and that has a lot to do with artificial intelligence. Mm. Um, this is one of the giant innovations, uh, some say bigger than when the World Wide Web was visited upon us, and there are w- profound worries about existential threats to the to our well-being from this technology but it also offers fantastic new possibilities f- to raise standards of living and make our livelihoods better what i would say is
0: and we have 20 seconds who, left david
1: all right in 15 seconds <laughs> who gets to decide how what the safeguards are for ai and making it better and it should be a wide conversation with people from many di- disciplines
0: I want to thank our guest this hour, David Brancaccio, the host of Marketplace Morning Report. I've so enjoyed uh, hearing more than eight minutes of you, David. Thank you for your time today. (laughs) It's so fun to be here. This conversation was produced by Maya Backstrom. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.